And somehow four names came to my mind. They're all disassociated. And I, I know I risk diagnosis in terms of disassociation here, but I'm going to do it anyway. First of all is Albert Schweitzer. The story I remember briefly is a time he was taking a tour raising funds and ended up in a small town to raise funds. And the town people, townspeople came out to hear him. He was a theologian, a philosopher, and a great musician. And the townspeople were disappointed. They waited and they waited and they waited and nobody showed up. Except somebody said they just saw this old man carrying baggage for an older lady. Otherwise they missed him. The second name comes to mind is uh, Isaac Newton and the apple tree, which you all know the legend, where he was watching apples fall from the tree and suddenly saw, saw apples falling from the tree in a new way, uh, that discovering that here's a force that holds the planets together. Then there's Albert Einstein. Uh, I think he was talking one day about the technology and the advancement of our race and how well we're doing and getting to the moon and discovering things, and then made a statement about, now we need to focus on the human problem, and we need a new way of thinking. And then there's Murray Bowen, a psychiatrist who, as I understand, was uh, working with uh, traumatized troops coming back in World War II and trying to find better ways to deal with severity of trauma. He and among others uh, were looking for ways and headed for the relationship system of the family and discovered that there's more here than he thought. The conventional models were not effective at the time. He, I believe, saw a new way of capturing the phenomenon in front of us, and it's been there all the time. The family is an emotional unit, forces beyond the individual influencing each individual. And I believe it's clear that Bowen always loved puzzles, and puzzles seemed to challenge him. Larry Bowen was the mentor of our speaker tonight, one of the main mentors. In 1979, in Columbus, Ohio, I went to a conference called The Family Puzzle. And there were leaders there from education, worship, so on, and, yeah, and the church. And then there was this rabbi who came on, and first thing he talked about was how hard it was to get into his church because the plane was late or something, and they couldn't get through, and the phones were not working, and the doors were locked, and he finally got a hold of the janitor. And he went on to talk about a family model and the anxiety and the emotional triangles, and suddenly this started to spark in my head. As a parish pastor, seemed to tease out the idea that there may be other ways to see the dilemmas and the quandaries of parish leadership. Everything doesn't have to be taken so personally at times. There was another way, perhaps, to the woods. You know, like going from the 50-yard line to the back seat at the bleachers or up in a Goodyear blimp. You see patterns there you don't see at the 50-yard line, even though it includes the 50-yard line. A way of opening the lenses to life that's interconnected. Many have read Generation to Generation, the groundbreaking book now in its 10th printing, I guess, or is it 11th? Is it 11 now or 10? I don't know, 11. 11? <laughs> A new way of thinking being applied to this emotional interlock of family, congregation, and work system, and families in the system. Now there's a new book in the works, as you've all heard. I come to believe that this new book has a life of its own. It's become part of the evolutionary process. It's going to be out someday. <laughs> but for me, it's like been, but like experiencing a moving parable that 
working with these ideas and, 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 and the direction this is taking, uh, it kind of catches you up in it and you're challenged and you have to make some decisions, whether to move ahead or to go back and watch TV or just celebrate, risking the doors opening up and the spirit of adventure coming in. Dr. Edwin Freeman has been practicing and teaching family therapy in Washington, D.C. since 1967. He served as community relations consultant to the White House on housing desegregation. He speaks to groups from governors and their staff to three-star generals to trapless monks, 40 of the 50 states at least. Dr. Friedman is a charter member of the American Family Therapy Academy, or called AFTA, and an approved supervisor in the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy, and a diplomat in AAPC, American Association of Pastoral Counselors. From another point of view, maybe you haven't heard, it isn't in the newspapers, that a recent interview with Satan, where Satan was describing a dilemma that he, Satan, was having. And the Holy One was up to something different, something unusual, and Satan wasn't quite sure what it was, and two things were showing up. One, an apparent increase in the economy, and secondly, the tempter was more perplexed by the fact that some damn rabbi was out there helping Christians become better Christians. <laughs> Please welcome a person who, despite the fact he continues to make extra strong coffee for his students year after year, is, I believe, one of the unique sages of our time, Dr. Friedman. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, you can hear me. All right. Um, I'm going to go and be as radical as I can right off the bat, as long as I've got that kind of introduction. I'll move this more to the center so that you all can uh, see what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to start out with a bottom line idea. A few of you I recognize have heard this before, and uh, some of you I know have uh, heard me in various places, and all I can do is hope I do it slightly differently this time. Um, let's say that this person, male or female, black or white, Jewish or Christian, is in any kind of work system at all. It could be a family system too. But let's say that this person wants to be creative. This person is imaginative. This person isn't just following the crowd. This person is trying to stay out of the anxiety in the system and is not getting involved in all the gossip, but just concentrating on being productive, imaginative, fulfilled, and so on. And what happens is, instead of this person being supported by peers or subordinates or people above him or her in the hierarchy, Whenever that is true, and this is 100% what I'm going to say, whenever that's true, the person at the very top of that system, the head of that organization, is a peacemonger. I'll repeat it to make clear what I'm saying. Whenever anyone in any system at all, work system, family system, whatever, is trying to be creative, trying to be imaginative, uh, not get all caught up in the gossip, trying to be well-differentiated, to use a phrase, and instead of being supported, that person is being sabotaged. 
There are all kinds of administrative snafus. People are getting sick. People are uh, just, just screwing them up. Then whenever that's true, the person at the very top of the system will be a peacemonger, by which I mean someone to whom good feelings is more important than progress. Someone who cannot stand conflict. Someone who, one who is an avoider of anxiety. One whiff of anxiety on goes an emotional gas mask and they flip. I repeat again. Whenever anyone in any institution, organization, any kind of system is trying to be well differentiated as a self, and instead of being supported, praised, thrilled to, instead is constantly criticized, attacked, subverted, sabotaged, then what will always be true about that system is that the person at the very top is weak. Now this principle has come to me over the years to the point that if anybody comes in to talk to me about their organization, I know within five minutes how the leader is functioning. But here's what's subversive about this. This person at the top doesn't even have to know the person who's being sabotaged for their functioning to affect that person. This person and this person never have to even see one another. Here's what's revolutionary about this concept. First of all, it means role modeling is an illusion. Role modeling, emulation, identification, which are conventional psychological concepts, they're illusions. They only work with people who are not going to be the problem. You can work your butt off trying to be a good model, but the people who are going to be the chronic problems in your family or work system, it don't matter how good you function. There are other variables that go into that. And what happens is leaders are constantly stressed into trying to be better, thinking that as a result of their being better, their followers will be better, and I ain't seen that work anywhere. The people who follow the leader, they'd have followed the leader anyway. But the people who are going to be chronically troubled and troubling will not be affected by the modeling of the leader. There's another variable involved. Secondly, what's subversive about this idea is that gender, race, class, age, and so on are irrelevant to this phenomenon. This will work to the same extent no matter what the gender of the people involved, no matter what the race, the culture, the religion, and so on. Where I'm headed is, and this is the bottom line of everything I'm going to talk about the next two days, I think the reason leaders are stressed today, leaders being parents, leaders being clergy, leaders being political leaders, uh, leaders being business leaders, whatever, is not because we don't have the right method or, te or technique, not because we don't have enough data. On the contrary, it is because of the way we conceptualize problems to begin with. The conceptualization of problems in terms of the social science construction of reality is what I think throws us off. The social science construction of reality is suggesting that the key to leadership, let me take that back, the key to relationships is the culture people belong to, the race, their age, their gender, and so on, and I'm going to suggest to you that's virtual reality, that's not reality. Reality has much more to do with the emotional processes that are endemic to all peoples, all groups, all societies, all families, 
And they're the same as long as those people are made of protoplasm. We all inherit the same protoplasmic traditions that go all the way back to the first multicellular organisms. The first societies were multicellular organisms, and later I'll show you that the problems they had to work out two billion years ago are the same problems we got today. They were the same problems in the American Constitutional Convention and so on. I'm going to repeat what I've said up to this point and then explain how I got there. I've traveled in the last 10 years to 40 of the 50 states. I've presented before almost every imaginable religious denomination and some unimaginable ones too. <laughs> I've presented before governors and their staffs, mayors and their staffs, uh, I just did a presentation for the uh, Executive Committee of the Chief of Naval Operations. I've done a presentation for the General Staff of the United States Army. The problems are always the same. The solutions are always the same. The conceptualizations of relationships are always the same. What I've deduced from that is whatever stresses us is in our civilization's thinking processes rather than having the right or wrong technique or method, or data. And that's the essence of what I'm going to be presenting today and tomorrow, and I'm going to come at it from a bunch of different angles. To repeat once more, another way of putting this, all relationship systems are emotional fields, like a gravitational field or a magnetic field. A field is an environment of force. A field comes into being when matter comes close to matter. The planets at some point get close to one another, their gravitational pulls trade off, and you have a homeostasis, and it stays that way. The intriguing thing is, once the field comes into existence, it has more power to influence the matter that brought it into existence than that matter can continue to influence the field. I'll say that one more time. Once a field comes into existence, and a field can only come into existence when matter gets close to matter, but then the field becomes the operating ent entity, and the field has more power to influence each of the pieces of matter in it than those same pieces of matter can influence the field, even though there'd be no field if they weren't there. The difference, however, between gravitational, magnetic, and emotional fields is when you're dealing with emotional fields of people rather than transistors or atoms or cells, people have the capacity to see the field, particularly the leader. And a leader can, by his or her functioning, influence the field. So where I'm headed is this. The functioning of the leader his or her presence, how anxious or non-anxious they are, their capacity to be challenging, their capacity to have vision, their capacity to be self-regulated, and good stuff like that, which I'll go into later. That's what influences people to come down to one word. It's presence, not knowledge. It's presence, not technique. It's presence, not method. I've been working on this book on leadership, putting in a lot of data, information I know secondhand, firsthand, from therapy, from education, from medicine. 
I always knew that it must be the same in the business world, but I wasn't positive. And last week, I read through over a hundred articles I've been cutting out of the Wall Street Journal for the last few years on leadership. And I was astounded to see that all the issues are the same, all the solutions are the same, and if you go to the library, the number of journals that exist in the field of business almost outnumber the number of journals you could find in a religious section of a library or a therapeutic section of a library, and they seem to be anxiety personified. I mean, there's a journal for everything. Now, what I'm suggesting, I believe, is as true in the business world, as in a family, as in a work system. When that leader can be well-defined, it will promote self-differentiation everywhere. When that leader is poorly defined, then the field will sabotage self-differentiation everywhere. What this has led to for me, as basically a family therapist, is I have stopped working with families. I seek the leader and I work with the leader alone. And I found that if I can help the leader in a family to become better differentiated and hang on there with the expected sabotage, then the rest of the family is in therapy whether or not they come into my office. But now i found the same thing is true in any other society. If a state came to me, I wouldn't be interested in seeing all the heads of all the departments. All I want to see is the governor. When a minister or rabbi calls me about problems in the congregation and wants me to go off with their board of trustees or vestry or church council on a retreat, I don't want to do that. I want to see one or two people at the top. Um, give you an example. I had a situation in a synagogue where the rabbi had gotten divorced. And um, while he was in this divorced state, a married woman in his congregation came on to him. And he said, you know, not with a married woman. And she kept saying, I'm leaving my husband. There's no problem. And finally, the seduction occurs, and he has a tryst with her once or twice. He then, in a uh, fatal attraction situation, says to her, no more, this was wrong, and sh I have another girlfriend from outside who's coming in, and I'm going to date her. And she says, if you do that, I'll announce to the whole congregation what happened between us. He says, I'm going ahead with it. He does it. A couple of weeks later, the confirmation class is meeting, and that woman's son comes in and says, where do you hear about the rabbi and my mother? Wow. Well, they bring the rabbi in. He, says, he talks to the confirmation class. He says, listen. He said, I was weak, I was vulnerable, I did it, but I stopped. And all the kids, 15, they understood. <laughs> <laughs> but they went home to their parents and told their parents who did not understand. <laughs> uh, he came in to see me with the president and vice president of his congregation. It happened they were all men. It didn't have to be. I've seen situations like this where rabbis or ministers, or rabbis who think they've gotten in trouble like this, where the president of the synagogue was a woman and where she rescues him. So it doesn't happen. Anyway, these three guys come in and they're wondering what do we do with the congregation on this? 
And I just worked with them on being less anxious about it, on not being reactive to the people in the congregation, on the rabbi taking clear positions of admitting what he did, defining himself, accepting his weakness, and so on. Now, this took place somewhere between five and seven years ago. I just saw an article that that rabbi is looking for an assistant. So he's been able to stay in there. The congregation has been healthy, and it depended on these people at the top. Had they been reactive, had they been too caught up in taking polls of what everybody thought, as you all know, you can tell how well-defined the leadership in any church or synagogue is by the extent to which they take polls about everything. <laughs> well-defined boards of trustees and vestries don't keep polling the congregation. This was not that kind of group. They stood together, they took stands, they admitted things, and they were non-reactive, and it worked. That's one salacious example. Um, I could give you more examples that are not salacious, and obviously I can, it's an ecumenical principle. The same thing would work in the business. The same thing would work in the Navy. I'll give you one from the opposite point of view, the Navy. How many of you are familiar with the story of the cruiser Indianapolis, which went down quickly uh, after it delivered the atomic bomb to the Marianas? They did some movies on it last year. Just raise your hand. Just curious. All right. Now, the cruiser Indianapolis delivers the atomic bomb to the Marianas. It goes down in the Pacific, sunk by a Japanese submarine, leaves 800 men in the water, no sustenance, sharks, scorching sun. There was some miscommunication at a higher level in terms of systems thinking. Nobody found the ship for several days. They didn't even know it was missing. It also happens that MacArthur and Nimitz didn't get along, and that trickled down. <laughs> Many of the men swam away from the safety of the group and gave themselves up to the sharks. All right? And I think less than half survived what was, I think, four or five days in that hostile environment. The captain of that ship was court-martialed for not zigzagging. And it was left there, and there were some questions about whether the captain was to just the butt of everybody else's irresponsibility or what. But now let me tell you some other things that were true about that captain. Shortly after his court-martial, his wife got cancer, and then she died, and then he killed himself on the front steps of his house. Shot himself. My view is what happened in that family is indicative of a very poorly differentiated emotional system. Without knowing anything else about it, I know that that captain is a poor leader. I know that that captain can't handle stress, can't handle anxiety, is not in charge of himself. And it is my guess that a different kind of captain in the water, operating to stay in touch with his men, operating to uh, organize them, singing songs, doing anything, would have produced far more survival in the water, and probably that same kind of guy would have remembered to zigzag. <laughs> All right? That's from an entirely different context, my point about leadership. The leader affects the emotional field. I haven't read anything about what that captain was doing in the water, but he wasn't in charge. He wasn't present among his men. 
Had he been, this system would have been better integrated. Now, I'm going to go back up and read some stuff to you about how I got to this conclusion. As I said to you earlier, I've been in 40 of the 50 states. And what I see is as true in big cities as in small cities. I tend to go to medium-sized cities, say, like Lansing. And it's intriguing to me, thank you, because I'm originally a big city guy from New York and have lived in Washington my whole professional life. But I go to places like Alexandria, Louisiana. You know, um, I was just in Columbus, Georgia. Um, I, I wind up in uh, smaller cities in Colorado. California. And I'm intrigued by the similarity of the problems that everybody has, no matter what their discipline, no matter what their profession. And certain things have showed up consistently, no matter where I go. Now, I'm going to give you four of them. All right. The first thing that I see everywhere in America is a regressive, counter-evolutionary trend in which it is the most dependent members of any organization that set the agendas, where the adaptation is constantly toward weakness rather than strength, and that this process leverages power to the recalcitrant, the passive-aggressive, and the most anxious members of an institution, rather than towards the energetic, the visionary, the imaginative, and the most creatively motivated. There is, in short, as I see it everywhere I go, an adaptation toward immaturity. Since I use the word maturity here and there, I guess I mean the same thing as differentiation. And the definition of maturity I will give you is the willingness to take responsibility for your own emotional being and destiny. That's the most ecumenical concept I can come up with. That's a definition that would fit any culture, any gender, any age, any era. The willingness to take responsibility for your own emotional being and destiny. In all events, what I see all over America is a counter-evolutionary adaptation toward weakness, toward those who do not take the responsibility. With the result that emphasis on things like consensus and team building leverages power to the extremists in every group. Because they can keep pushing the carrot of unity further out on the stick as the price for their inclusion. I, by the way, tend to speak 30, 40 minutes and then throw it open for questions. So there'll be plenty of time for you to argue with me and disagree with me and whatever. The second thing I see everywhere in America is a demeaning and devaluing of self, of individuation with the result that leaders keep going to consultants 
instead of working on their own capacity to be decisive. And the consultants support that by giving administrative, managerial, and technical solutions to what are basically emotional process problems. And it wouldn't matter whether you went to a consultant in business, a consultant in religious institutions, a consultant to families. The consultants of our day are constantly focused on administrative, managerial, and technical solutions rather than supporting the leaders to be able to be more decisive, to be better differentiated. So that my own thinking is that the rise of the consulting profession in our time is symptomatic of a general failure of nerve on the part of leaders and parents to define themselves more clearly. The third thing I see everywhere, and note, I'm presenting these principles as principles that are independent of the social science construction of reality and implicitly suggesting that the, that the social science of construction of reality has become our way of avoiding reality. Third, what I see everywhere is a panicky obsession with data and technique that has become a form of substance abuse turning professionals into data junkies, their information into data junkyards, and enabling decision makers to avoid or deny the emotional processes that are preventing change. There is a link between differentiation and focus on emotional process. To the extent a society focuses on technique and data and method rather than on the differentiation of the leaders, then the society will not focus on emotional process, or vice versa. To the extent the society focuses on data, method, and technique, rather than emotional process, the self-differentiation of leaders gets lost in the mess. Now, each of these ideas I'm going to expand at great length over the next two days. Fourth, What I see everywhere in American society is a misunderstanding about the nature of pathology or destructive processes or evil in which it is assumed that the destructive processes in life, whether they're in a people, a movement, a person, or within the human body, that toxic forces can be dealt with through reasonableness and love. Or through insight. Or through role modeling. Or through inculcation of values. Or through striving for consensus. I haven't seen that to be true anywhere. As near as I can tell, what all destructive forces in the universe share in common, whether you're talking about a cell, a malignant cell, a virus, a chronically troubling member of your institution, or a totalitarian nation, or organized crime, what they all have in common 
is that they lack self-regulation. That's about as universal principle as I can come up with. And the intriguing thing about all organisms and forces that lack self-regulation is they have two further qualities. One is they will be perpetually invasive of their neighbor's space. And the second is they can't learn from their experience. I'm going to go back to the blackboard again and uh, diagram another idea for you. I am struck by the extent to which all the, uh, the good people in society keep spending up, I gotta get a, well, that's fine. Anybody got an eraser? I'll use my app. You got one? Oh, what is that? It's just an app. Oh, okay. Thank you. I'll leave the circle up. I can use the circle. Um, (laughs) This circle is the hemoglobin cycle. I don't know if you know how a hemoglobin cycle works in the body, but the hemoglobin cycle is like a conveyor belt with little baskets on it, if you could think of it that way. And what the hemoglobin cycle does is it picks up O2, oxygen molecules, and brings it to the various tissues, okay? And what it does also, then, is take the carbon dioxide, CO2, and move it to the lungs where it's expelled, okay? So the hemoglobin cycle does two things. The hemoglobin molecules pick up the O2 molecules and distribute it among the tissues, and they take the CO2 molecules, carbon dioxide, bring it to the lungs and get it expelled. If, however, instead of O2, you get CO, which is called carbon monoxide, when the carbon monoxide molecule hooks up with a hemoglobin molecule, it's irreversible. And it can't let go of it again. So once a full cycle of hemoglobin molecules gets married to these carbon monoxide molecules, and it doesn't take that long, then the body suffocates. It's lost its means of regeneration. Here's what this is about. I see the hemoglobin molecules and cycle as the helping professions in our society. And I see the carbon monoxide molecules as the unmotivated people. And what's happening in society is all the hemoglobin helping profession molecules are picking up the carbon monoxide unmotivated molecules and society is suffocating. In other words, the energy, the persistence, the goodwill, the intelligence, the knowledge of the helping professions is going disproportionately into the people who do the least with what we have to offer. And all of this is supported by what I will talk about later, the fallacy of empathy. Responsibility is more important than empathy. Clarity is more important than empathy. But under the 
rubric of empathy, I believe we're suffocating. I am astounded at the extent to which members of the helping professions keep trying to stuff insight into unmotivated people. <laughs> and the issue of motivation is far more critical than issues of love and reasonableness and all that other good stuff. So that is the fourth thing I see everywhere in America. And it is as true for, well, let's see if I can give an example. Every now and then I get called into a church. Got this troublemaking member. What's the matter? Well, on Sunday morning, people go up to him and say, how are you, Mr. Smith? And he says, fine till I saw your face. <laughs> and he's, that, this is a true story. And uh, he's, uh, he's disruptive. Just plain disruptive to our society. So um, we went to the bishop, and the bishop said we should go to you for a consultation. I said, why do you need a consultation on this? I mean, just tell him he's got to shape up or ship out, you know? I mean, just tell him you won't tolerate that in your community. And they'll say something like, well, that's not the Christian thing to do. And I say, you have no idea how many synagogues tolerate abusers because it's not the Christian thing to do. <laughs> This issue is universal. The willingness to stand up to the invasive people in a system. So the fourth characteristic I see everywhere is the assumption that toxic forces, which are always invasive, or they wouldn't be toxic, the illusion that this can be dealt with through reasonableness and love and insight and so on, rather than taking stands, defining self to those elements. Pathology is always interrelational. Churchill made that statement about World War II, that World War II came about because the malice of the wicked was reinforced by the weakness of the virtuous. He could have been talking about AIDS. He could have been talking about many churches and synagogues in America. He could have been talking about what happens in communities with people who take over school boards and so on. Okay, to sum up and throw it open for questions, and there are two microphones. I've tried to present to you a bottom line idea. The bottom line idea is that we're all stuck, not because we don't have the right method and not because we don't have enough data or the right technique, but because of the way our civilization conceptualizes the problem, and that either is because of the social science construction of reality or the social science construction of reality has been put to the service of that denying force. And what is being denied is emotional process and the differentiation of leaders. Okay, all of that is by way of introduction. Anybody want to raise their hand, ask a question, make a comment, uh, something for clarity, something for disagreement. Take a microphone. What was the third point? The third one? Yeah, you need to hear it again. I think that was the focus on data and technique. Okay. You made a com comment well, in, in your statement of, the, of this basic con idea. 
I was immediately thinking of, a, of, a, of the Republican campaign. The which campaign? The Republican campaign yeah. recently uh, with the various people who tried to run for, to get uh, to be the presidential candidate. And is there a, a way to talk about, is that, is that as an example to talk about what you're discover, discovering? You mentioned that the, the tendency of, of the, dis, the least differentiated pushing uh, to the extremes of things, uh, forcing people to accept them so that there'd be a, finally be a consensus. Sort of holding that out as a as a as a carrot to to the larger organization to try to include the most what I don't know to call them the most what they're supposed to be. Well, I'm yeah. saying the most recalcitrant, the most dependent, the most passive aggressive. The sticks in the mud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you saying? What are well, you asking? What I'm asking is, can can we take a look at the Republican campaign and apply your your pattern or idea to it. I don't want to get into you know. I don't want. I don't want. I don't want a, a political discussion. I want to see is is that because that's got to be a form of family process, the choosing of the leader, somehow in that. All I can tell you is living in Washington and knowing a lot of people in Washington, people close to both the Democratic and Republican leaders at the top have read some of my material, liked it, tried to bring it to leaders who won't touch it. But that's that seems to be across the board. I don't know how else to. I don't know why we should assume. I don't see that we could assume that Republicans or Democrats are better differentiated any more than Jews or Christians or males or females or anything else. You know. Yes, there was another hand. Someone. You yeah, yeah, had your hand up. Yeah, yeah. I won't hear you unless you go to the microphone. <laughs> okay. I had a couple of uh, things. One was that you said that um, the emotional field is more powerful. A little louder. I can't. The emotional field, uh, once it gets started, is more powerful than the individual in that field. And I'm thinking of the uh, natural systems theory in terms of evolutionary thing. Um, how does it happen that the leader doesn't emerge? I'm not saying he's elected, but doesn't emerge as a positive evolutionary force. Isn't that? I mean, is there in anything contemporary America? You mean? Well, in contemporary, that kind of buys into the, the second part here, um, and that's that the, the toxic force, always being invasive, um, cannot be dealt uh, dealt with without standing up, without somebody standing and defining self, some some definition of self. Um, shouldn't there be, therefore, a, a biological equivalent of that somehow? I mean, can you speak to that at all? I'll go into that. I think a lot over the next two days. Oh, okay. If I understand your question. Look, if I understand your question, it's why aren't leaders arising who will deal with that? Shouldn't they emerge <laughs> automatically? Uh, My quick somehow. answer to you would be, this is a quick answer, I'll develop it more. I think our civilization is in a chronically anxious state, and chronically anxious families don't produce well-defined leaders. They neither choose them nor support them. But I'll develop the idea later for you. Okay? It'll take a while that's, to That's a pretty pessimistic view, isn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, that, that means ultimate death of yeah. the organism of our society. Uh -huh. 
There's no way. Well, if you prefer, you know, we can just have rock and roll up here and make, <laughs> and make you feel comfortable. You know, is that what is that what you came for? You came to feel comfortable? I don't know. I'm always on the side of pain, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, your fourth point where you had said um, toxic forces cannot be dealt with um, through love, modeling, reasonableness, insight, striving for consensus, and yet that's how most helping persons want to approach these forces. In, in the next few days, are you going to address if there is any place in the field where those types of characteristics um, are appropriate or if we just throw them out altogether? Again, I don't have a simple answer to that. I'll be developing response to it in the sense the whole two days. But I, just to give some answer to it right off the bat, it would be that um, those people who are responsive and motivated and responsible, then all that good stuff works. But with those people who clearly are not being, who are playing yes but games with you and who are not motivated, those people will not change until they're in enough pain. And part of the issue is to be able to understand challenge as a form of caring rather than thinking, equating caring with simply trying to feel for others. But I'll develop that a little more. Thanks. Please turn the cassette over for a continuation of the presentation. Make a comment where I've come so far. Okay. Anybody? What I want to do next, next presentation, is I want to show you that it is possible for an entire civilization to be off base. Okay? Uh, in a sense, this is a justification of much of what I'm going to present to you. But I just want to show you that it is possible, as leaders, to be caught in a system where the most basic ideas about civilization could be misperceptions, could be misorientations. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to make a presentation to you that is a series of slides. Some of, how many of you have seen the slide? I know I've done it around the country here and there, so some of you, I know I've seen it. Okay, just about a half a dozen or so. Um, oh, I did want to ask another question. How many of you are not clergy? Just so I get some idea. Uh, and how many of you are not therapists? No, I meant of the group that are not clergy. Not everybody. I'm trying to narrow it down. I know who the clergy are. Those of you who are not clergy, how many of you are from some other field than, say, therapy or education? Uh, what would those fields be? Business or law? What other fields are representative? I can't hear. Nursing. Nursing. Well, members. Of, so most of you are members of the helping professions. Then, if the one. What? You're one of those horrible consultants, aren't you? <laughs> well, you might be saved, you know. Keep <laughs> working on it. Um, I, of course, am using the word consultant in the sense of anybody who's in a position to give advice. In all events, what I'm 
going to present to you is the notion that Europe, before Columbus, in the medieval time, was stuck. And the idea that I'm going to present is the Renaissance, which was how Europe got out of its stuckness, was not the result of learning. That that is a prejudice of the academic community. I'm going to present to you instead the notion that the Renaissance flowered because of adventure. And I'm going to suggest to you that many of the things that are assumed to have been attributed to the development of data and knowledge would not have occurred without a sense of imagination and adventure. The Renaissance, if you read books on it or look in academic profiles of the Renaissance, it begins with Petrarch toward the end of the 13th century. He coined the word. And for the next roughly, not quite, 200 years, you have a renewed interest in classical learning, you have painting, you have sculpture, you have the beginnings of certain forms of literature, but it's very slow. So what academicians say is the Renaissance must be distinguished between the early Renaissance and the high Renaissance, which occurs around 1500. Why 1500? Why not 1501? Why not 1499? It's a conventional date, like 40 years wandering in the desert. The Renaissance comes on the heels of the discovery of America. It is the discovery of a new world, as Europe called it, that triggered the imaginative capacity of Europe, that enabled it to flower. The technical orientation will related to economic development. That was part of it. But what I want to suggest to you is, when a system is stuck, it cannot get out of its stuckness through more thinking about the problem. That's as true about a marriage, a family, an institution, a corporation, whatever. Because, generally speaking, the way you're framing the problem prevents you from challenging your own self. Whereas adventure forces you to have the kind of serendipitous experiences that will challenge your mindset. I'm going to give you three characteristics of stuckness and show you how they apply to medieval Europe. And then I'm going to show you how Europe got unstuck, first just talking about the process, and then I'll talk something about the people who were involved. While they were all men, I believe that what they had, and all white men, what they had in common is exactly what any gender, any ethnic group, any age group, any cultural group must have in its leaders if the system has to get unstuck. The first characteristic of a stuck system is a treadmill effect. The treadmill effect is marked by trying harder and harder to change your child, your spouse, your parent, your church or synagogue, your corporation, the voters, whatever, and with each failure responding by trying even harder. The effort to try harder 
creates an emotional set that prevents one from thinking imaginatively. Europe was in that boat. Europe kept trying to get through the Moors. It kept trying to get to Asia, to the Far East, to the spices, the silks, the riches of the Far East, and it just kept trying to bust through the Moors. So you had centuries of crusades. You had all kinds of efforts to find a way to bypass the Moors, and with each failure, finally enough energy has gotten together to try even harder. That's no different than preaching the same subject over and over again in one's institution, or saying the same thing over and over again to one's child, one's partner, or any group you're leading. The treadmill effect creates an emotional process that keeps one from being imaginative. The second characteristic of a stuck system is a focus on answers rather than questions. The way you phrase a question is more important than the answers you can think up. Because the way you phrase the question determines the range of answers you can think up. What is called today a paradigm shift is always changing the question. Let me see if I can give you an example. I just saw a beauty on this. A therapist who's been on her son, who's 15 years old, to do his schoolwork, to do his homework, to go to school on time, to study, on this treadmill without any effect. She understood that it was necessary for her to back off that, that it was counterproductive, but she had such difficulty keeping herself from not doing it. And so she kept focusing on how am I going to change my child? And then one day, and I don't know how she did it, she goes to her son and says, you know, whether you go to college or not is your problem and not mine. Frankly, if you never don't make it, I'm going to save a lot of money, and it's crazy for me to keep pushing you to do something that's going to cost me a lot. So I'll tell you what. From now on, every time I comment on your schoolwork, you can find me a dollar. A daughter's standing there, bit younger and says, does that count for me too? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> a couple of days later, she forgets herself and reminds her daughter, did you do such and such for school? And the daughter says, I could fine you for that. And mother says, you're absolutely right. Takes out a dollar and gives it to her. Now that mother has changed the question. She has changed it from, how do I get my kids to improve their schoolwork to, how do I focus on my own lack of self-regulation and my own anxiety, and how can I work on that? What I would add is, this woman has had chronic migraine headaches, and I would be willing to predict that if she keeps going in this direction with regard to her kids, her mother, and her husband, her migraine headaches are going to recede. But that's secondary. The main thing is, she changed the question from how do I get my kid to do the schoolwork to how do I regulate my own anxiety over it. 
That would be a shift in changing the question. It's a change in orientation. <coughs> Medieval Europe was oriented to the Far East. The word orient is in the word to orient something. It comes from the Latin oreo, which means rise, where the sun rises. Europe was oriented to the Orient. It goes on for at least two or three centuries. It took Europe at least two to three hundred years to realize that what it had found was more important than what it was looking for. For a couple of centuries, it was in the way. And so everybody kept looking for the Northwest Passage. And that goes down to Jefferson, who sends Lewis and Clark west to see if the Missouri hooks up with the Columbia. He's still looking for the Northwest Passage. It's still oriented to the Orient. The third characteristic of a stuck system is polarization into false dichotomies. Polarization into divisions that are not real divisions, but somehow have created a way of thinking and alliances that prevent imaginative capacity. The great polarization in Columbus's time is, is it 3,000 or 10,000 miles to Japan? The funding committee in Isabella's court says it's 10,000 miles. The Greeks have already measured the circumference of the Earth within a few hundred miles, and they say, you're crazy. And Columbus has elongated Siberia and made the Atlantic Ocean, which is the only ocean out there, and he made it into a pool. So Columbus keeps saying it's 3,000, which is just how far a ships can go, and the funding committee keeps saying it's 10,000. Well, you look at that polarization between them and you wonder, how could they be so stupid? How could they have overlooked the obvious third possibility? That it's neither. That there's land in between. But that's the effect of polarization. Polarization appears to be an intellectual difference, but it's an emotional phenomenon. Polarization winds up in either or, black or white, all or nothing thinking, which is the thinking characteristic of schizophrenia. Will some Alpha Centurion academic arrive here 500 years from now, as we are 500 years from Columbus, and say, you thought male-female was the important distinction? You thought black and white was the important distinction? You thought nature-nurture was the important distinction? How could you have missed the obvious? But that's the effect of polarization, which is basically an emotional phenomenon. And as long as the system is polarized, it can't be imaginative. So those are the three characteristics of stuckness. And uh, I'm going to show you how Europe got unstuck. Does someone know where the light switches are? Could you close that door over on the side? I think it puts a beam of light. That's... 
Now, this is the first map that got me thinking about this. And uh, you'll see, this map's from the 1620s. And you'll see that they got Florida, and Cuba, and Hispaniola, and Mexico, and the Yucatan pretty good. What's interesting is over here, where they have California as an island. <laughs> this map, as I said, is from 1626. Some people think it's 2026, but it's... <laughs> and here it is again, the two hemispheres, and there's California as an island. One of the intriguing things about this map is um, across the top it says a new and accurate map of the world drawn according to the latest discoveries and descriptions of various observers. Um, recently I saw in a hospital journal two maps of the brain, one from an MRI and one from a CAT scan. When CAT scans came out, everybody said, this is reality, not ordinary x-rays. But in these two maps of the brain, the CAT scan misses, an M misses a uh, tumor that the MRI picks up. So is reality anything but what the cartographers of the day are telling you it is? Are we always dealing with virtual reality? When are we dealing with real reality? On the other hand, I think the cartographers of the day only hold sway where no one or where everyone is afraid to adventure. Mistakes are a small price to pay to get the ships out of the harbor. But as long as people are pursuing certainty rather than adventure, then the cartographers of the day hold sway. There's a, more, a better one of California as an island. There's a polar projection in which up here, California is an island. What's intriguing is this map from 1570, 50 years earlier. The other maps were from the 1620s. This map from 1570 does not have California as an island. Now, that's just a strange quirk of that period of time where later researchers could be less accurate than earlier researchers. <laughs> You'll note also that South America seems to touch the Antarctica, or what they called Australasia. Um, this is 50 years after Magellan, who worked through those straits, never went south of Terra del Fuego. Drake, in, around the time this map was created, was blown south, one of the serendipitous events, is blown south and he finds out that the Atlantic and the Pacific do merge. Now this is the map that created the problem. This map was done by a man named John Briggs who swore on his deathbed that California was an island. Somehow or other he heard information from ship captains that must have confused Vancouver Island with the Baja and um, he put it in his map, claiming it, you could get out of the Northwest Passage just above that. And the strange thing is, it got included in a travelogue. Some of you may have heard of the famous travelogue at the time called uh, Purchase His Pilgrims. This map appeared in that book, and the volume of dissemination all over made this map popular and the virus got into everybody else's program.
so that for, depending on the people, for almost 200 years, maps showed California as an island. This is from around the time of the pilgrims. It lasts at least to Lexington and Concord, actually till about 1790. I just saw a, a new map, which I knew from my perception, because I keep getting information on this. A map from 1790 that still shows California as an island, though in 1700, a Portuguese king issued a, a, a document and saying by fiat, California is not an island and we should stop this nonsense. And still, maps kept doing it. Now, this is the Delmarva Peninsula, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia. The map is on its side and the north is here. West is at the top. So you see the Potomac River going west but going what looks like north. And there's the Chesapeake Bay in it and there's the Delmarva Peninsula. This is a very famous map done by John Smith of Pocahontas fame and it was copied for years and years. Very accurate for its time. Now John Smith sent a letter back home to England to his friend Henry Hudson and said, if you go just a little further north, I think you'll get through the continent. <laughs> so Hudson, of course, went into New York Harbor and found the Hudson River, and then he went up north and found Hudson Bay, but he never got through. However, that did not deter certain cartographers it's hard to understand this, but in those days, researchers could be very politically motivated. I mean, they would put the, <laughs> they would put the Mississippi River further west. French cartographers put the Mississippi River further west to increase their clans. And in this map, a copy of John Smith's map with the Chesapeake Bay here, Delmarva Peninsula here, but note up to the north, just beyond Ohio, is Sir Francis Drake peering out from the Pacific, or San Clemente, or something like that, and it says the Sea of China and the Indies. That's just, just beyond the Appalachian, somewhat. <laughs> um, but the intriguing thing, or most intriguing thing, is Henry Hudson did find a way to the Pacific, because here the Hudson River goes right into the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> The only use of that map is certain New Yorker cartoons that put the Pacific on the other side of New Jersey. <laughs> now, the Northwest Passage shows up everywhere. Here it's going through the Great Lakes. Here it says at the top in Latin, unknown northern sea. They're right, but it's under the ice. It was the fact that almost all pre-Columbian maps showed water all over that led Columbus to believe that if he just stays on the water, he'll find his way. Now this is my favorite map. This is Verrazano's map. Verrazano, unlike Columbus and Magellan and Da Gama and Cabot, Verrazano is a nobleman who goes across for the thrill and he's afraid to get too close to shore. He's not the same kind of navigator that the others are. And with no towing service around for miles, he's not going to get himself in trouble. The result is, even though Verrazano is the first person to go from Florida all the way up to Labrador and Nova Scotia, he misses every major bay on the Atlantic coast. <laughs> so there's no uh, Chesapeake Bay, there's no Delaware Bay, there's no Narragansett Bay, even though he docked at the mouth there of the river, and it appears that when Verrazano entered New York Harbor, 
He only went as far as the bridge. <laughs> In fact, the bridge is exactly where he landed. And we can thank God for that, because otherwise we'd have to call it the Verrazano River instead of the Hudson River. In all events, um, I'll have more to say about Verrazano later, but here we see um, all kinds of strange things. There's another thing to point out. This line here going horizontally and that line going up, what Verrazano has between those lines is a new ocean, which later came to be called the Sea of Verrazano, because when Verrazano got to the outer banks off North Carolina, he couldn't see over them to the mainland, and he thought he had found in the Bay of Albemarle a new ocean. So that in this next map, at the very top, what looks like Hudson Bay, is the Sea of Verrazano. And that's another virus that got into everybody's computer for a while. This, by the way, is the first map that ever depicted the whole Western Hemisphere by itself, done by a man named Munster in the 15th century. 16th century, in 1550. He has Magellan's ship off there to the left, and the Pacific Ocean is named. But that's the first rendering. The other intriguing thing, which is useful, is you'll note Japan is just a hop, skip, and a jump from uh, the West Coast. This undoubtedly led Magellan to think he could make it. And there, North and South America don't even touch, so you don't need a Panama Canal. This is the map by which Europe lived for 1,500 years. This was Europe's conception of itself. Ptolemy's map, Ptolemy, a geographer and cosmographer from the second century. What you see is the Indian Ocean, a huge landlocked lake with Sri Lanka or Ceylon in the middle. It ends there on the left with uh, Europe, and on the right is the middle of China. Marco Polo's voyages add Japan, and it ends at the equator. The backside is assumed to be all water. That's an unbelievable arrogance when you think about it. In all events, that was Europe's assumption of itself for 1,500 years. Ptolemy also believed in a geocentric view of the universe, that the entire planetary system, all the stars and so on, revolved around the Earth. Both of Ptolemy's ideas, which had lasted for 1,500 years, stop, disappear, are disproven within about 30 years of the discovery of America. In other words, the discovery of America in some way led to the questioning and the rejection of the two most holy principles by which Europe oriented itself a geocentric view of the universe and an earth stopping at the equator and having only water on the backside. Because Magellan's men in 1522 come back and prove that the world is circumnavigable and Copernicus, within about 10 years of that, begins to write down his ideas that it's a heliocentric universe. In fact, some research I did just by accident has turned up that Copernicus was studying in Italy around the time Magellan's men came back. And I think his hearing about how Ptolemy's geographical view was inaccurate may have emboldened him to go ahead with his ideas 
that Ptolemy's other view of the cosmos was inaccurate. Now, this is Martin Beheim's globe of 1492. He's got a globe. That isn't the issue. It's round. The Earth is round. But you can go from Europe to Japan, and there ain't nothing in the way. And the backside of his globe shows the Eurasian African landmass. This is a view of the world from the 11th century, and it's round. It's a metaphorical globe. Jerusalem is in the center, though it may be a disk rather than a globe. Here's how the changes came about. In the 1430s, a Portuguese king, since called Prince Henry the Navigator, becomes the first potentate to fund research. And Portugal, being on the outside of Europe, and maybe a little freer, as the Norse were, from the emotional processes of Europe, a little less stuck, he starts sending ships down the coast of Africa. The emotional climate of Europe, described in 1493 in the Nuremberg Chronicle, is that Europe is depressed. They talk about the calamity of our time. Uh, the authors of the Nuremberg Chronicle leave six pages blank at the end to record all the rest of the events till the end of the world. Why such a downer? It's in the wake of the plagues, the breakdown of the feudal order, the problems in the church, and cut off from the east by the moors. But Prince Henry the Navigator is already outside that process. He's already outside that depression. And he's sending ships down the coast of Africa. And every few years, they make another landfall further down. To give you an idea of the captain's courageous here, it is two and a half times the distance from Portugal to Cape Town that it is from Europe to America. We're talking more like 7,000 miles than 3,000. As you go down that coast, there's strangeness everywhere. The Atlantic turns blood red from the, uh, the sand of the Sahara. There is sweet, the Congo hits the Atlantic with such rush that the sweet, the surface of the Atlantic is sweet for 20 miles out. There's strange customs. Everything is strange. Somewhere in the 1470s, it's not clear exactly what year, the equator is crossed and people come back to tell about it. Evidently, the North Star seems to sink into the sea as you head toward the equator in a southern direction. That could have led to the notion it's the end of the world. But the equator was more than a physical boundary, it was a conceptual boundary, it was an emotional boundary. I'll talk more about those later. All civilizations have them. Emotional boundaries are concepts that are born out of mythology and kept in place by anxiety, and they inhibit adventure. Here's the coast of Africa, showing different landfalls all the way down. In the 1470s, they crossed the equator. And in 1488, to be exact, that's an exact date, 1488, four years before Columbus starts, but the two dates are connected, of course, in 1488, a man named Bartholomew Diaz rounds 
Cape Town and comes back and says to the Portuguese, we are no longer at the mercy of the Moors. I have found a way to east. But of course, he's still going east to get east. Spain now realizes it has nothing to lose, and as soon as funds are available after the defeating of the Moors at Granada, Ferdinand and Isabella, particularly Isabella, decides to fund Columbus. Columbus has given up on them and is headed to France. What's hard to understand today is that in those days, somebody could get a significant research grant, not because of their model, but simply for political reasons. <laughs> so the Spanish fund Columbus, and off he goes. People might say, well, the Renaissance was due to new technology. The shipping was new, due to new technology. In the upper left-hand corner here is a Viking ship. It is no different from a Roman ship. It is no different from a Persian ship. It is no different from a Phoenician ship. For 1,500 years, ships are the same. Finally, during this period, there is a development of, for example, new planking. Instead of the clinker style of planks overlapping, they start putting them on flush, and that makes more speed. It solidifies the bottom. They change the rigging of sails. They have new means of navigation. But progress is not technology-driven. Progress is driven by the human spirit. That technology was available all over for Arab countries and for European countries that were on the water. It is not the technology that does it. At the lower right-hand corner is the development of a new ship. It takes 1,500 years to get there. There it is. There's Henry Hudson's ship. It took 1,500 years to get to there, but it took 500 years to get from Henry Hudson's ship to the tanker it's standing on. So that might be a good ratio of change. That change now occurs three times faster. And of course, we wind up with Columbus's ship. That's a replica of what he went across in. And he goes from Europe to Honshu, the main island of Japan, thinking there's nothing in the way. The island of Honshu has some of the same latitudes as Cuba, so he's not so off base or crazy to think he's found Japan. It's also in a similar relationship to a continent. This is the oldest map from that period. It was done by Juan de Cosa, who owned the Santa Maria on the first voyage. He has Cuba, Hispaniola, the northern tip of Venezuela, and he's heard about Cabot in 1498. This is 1504. He's heard about Cabot, so he puts some vague landmass up at the top. This is the baptismal certificate of America done by Valsimula in 1509. Valsimula is a cartographer who hasn't yet got it straight. The Western Hemisphere is just stuck in as best he could. It is Mercator in the 1560s, 40, 50 years later, who figures out a way of distorting the continents and getting them all on the same planet. 
he works out a new relationship of the meridians and the parallels. But the intriguing thing about Balsi Muller is that he names America. Up at the top on the left is Ptolemy, and on the right of all people is Vespucci. Why Vespucci? Why not Verrazano? Why Vespucci? Why not Columbus? And there's Vespucci, Americi Vespucci. And Vasi Muller uses logic we would never use today. He says it's unfair to men that all these continents are named after women, Asia, Europa, Africa, and so on. And so he names this one after a man. Why Vespucci? Well, Vespucci was a good writer. And Vespucci went to Brazil. He was a banker, like Verrazano from the Medici, a nobleman almost. And he gets excited by what he sees in Brazil, and he writes it up, and he's a good writer. And in those days, if you were a good writer, you could become more popular than a good researcher. Not only that, he spiced the book with exotic, erotic tales of the natives of Brazil. And in those days, that would really help sell a book. <laughs> so we are named after the pornographer rather than the discoverer. <laughs> Shortly after that, Magellan makes his ill-fated voyage. Magellan's mission is to circumnavigate the globe. He's a guy who is ferocious in tenacity. He has a kind of PT-109 experience in which his ship is shipwrecked. Two or three of his ships are shipwrecked. And instead of escaping with one ship, he sends that ship for help. And unlike the captain of the Indianapolis, he stays in charge. And this is his capacity. But he gets done in by that same capacity because when he arrives in the Philippines, he gets caught up in a silly battle between two Indian tribes. Instead of leaving them to their own devices, literally, bows and arrows, thinks because of his guns he can influence the battle, gets involved in a battle that wasn't of his making or his responsibility, and is killed by an arrow. It's his men, takes them two years to come around. Later I will explain to you, Verrazano dies for the exact opposite reason, for being too cautious. Columbus, as I will show you, has the right blend. And Magellan makes his way down the entire coast, finding the Northwest Passage in the Southeast. That line, by the way, is the demarcation of the famous Treaty of Torcelitas, where the Pope helped Spain and Portugal work out a peaceful Bosnian solution. And the way they did that is to say that everything west of the line belongs to Spain and everything east of the line belongs to Portugal. So that says something about reading contracts before you sign them. To review what I've shown so far, here's the Ptolemy map ending at the equator, Europe's view of itself for 1,500 years. There's a Northwest Passage going through the Great Lakes. There's California as an island. There's an Appalachian tiger. This is the oldest map I could find that showed both hemispheres fully. I put it on the board, or put it on a screen on the slide, because what I want to present is the idea 
that in a paradigm shift, you don't just get new information. It changes the meaning of the old information. Once Europe started seeing the globe with both of these hemispheres, it wasn't like we have an old world and a new world. The old world's view of itself changed. And that is what I think brought on the Renaissance. It was a literally a paradigm shift, a quantum leap in thinking processes in a world that was stuck for 1,500 years. Could we have the lights again? Now the next thing I'm going to do is talk somewhat about the leaders who were involved in this. Turn off the uh, slide projector. The names are familiar to you. Columbus, Magellan, Da Gama, Drake, Verrazano, Vespucci, a guy named Bering, for which the Bering Straits are named, people like that. I believe they all had certain qualities or characteristics in common. I don't think those characteristics are male or female, Jewish or Christian, black or white or whatever. They are, I think, the same characteristics that are necessary if leaders in any system are to be able to unstick the world they're in. And that this would be as true in a marriage, because if I'm working with a marriage that's stuck, I'm going to look for the leader, as I said earlier. And I'm going to try to potentiate or bring out or help develop these qualities. By the way, how do you know who the leader in a family is? There's a foolproof way. It's the member of the family who can express themselves with the least amount of blaming. And if you say to me, I'm working with families where I can't find anyone like that, then I would say back, and you'll be stuck forever as long as that's true. Someone must get to the point where they take responsibility for their own emotional being and destiny, or the system will not change. It is Truman's statement, the buck stops here. What are the characteristics of these men? The first one I'd like to call vision, except that that word is so overused that maybe I have to explain more what I mean by vision. By vision, I mean not so much seeing into the future. I mean the capacity to see things the way nobody else sees it. And the reason I put it that way is it takes it out of the realm of the cerebral and puts it into the realm of the emotional. Vision is an emotional phenomenon, not a cerebral phenomenon. Because you cannot see things differently from everybody else if you're too emotionally globbed in with everybody else. Differentiation, self-differentiation is critical to vision. Now you could say to me, crazy people also are that way, and I hear that. Crazy people also see things differently. And maybe the only difference between successful people like Columbus and crazy people is the world comes to accept their view, or they turn out to be right. So that 
from the point of view of motivation, maybe the motivation is irrelevant. What's relevant is the validity of what they came up with. In all events, this capacity to see things differently. Columbus is one of the most imaginative men of all time. That's the first thing. It was there in all of them to some extent. Second is persistence. All of these guys are unbelievably persistent. They do not take no for an answer. They keep coming. They have the courage of their convictions. That sounds nice, but just remember, if people don't have conviction, then it doesn't matter whether they have the courage or their conviction. So you've got to start with the conviction, not the courage. These people were persistent. You might say, well, he's a man and he's a male talking that way. Women are different. That's not my experience. Most of my experience in working with families is women are far more motivated to see change than men, and the women who succeed are those who are persistent. But not persistent in willing others to change, persistent in heading toward their own goals. I'll spell that out later for you. I just read an article in the Wall Street Journal. A woman wants to go work for Xerox. I can't remember the community. She goes over there and they say, we're not hiring now. It's not only not hiring women, we're just not hiring. And she keeps trying to show them what she can do for the company. They don't take it. So what does she do? She goes over to the Kelly Girls firm there, the firm that supplies temporary help, and she says, I only want assignments with Xerox. The result is, she gets all these assignments to go over to Xerox, while she's at Xerox, she networks with everybody she can, and she lands a job. And then she continues that way and works her way up to almost a vice president. Well, you're going to assume she has less estrogen, or you're going to assume she uh, uh, is uh, somehow or other uh, um, got more male hormone? What are you going to, you going to say that? You know, persistence is everywhere. Third, Maybe I should put this second. They have energy and passion. Maybe that's what leads to the persistence. I more and more have come to realize that the critical issue in all leadership, the bottom line, is energy. And all the leadership programs in the world trying to train leaders, managers, administrators, are limited if the human being doesn't have energy. There was an article in the uh, New York Times about six months ago about what do very successful, very wealthy people do with their spare time. I mean, they own yachts and planes and so on. And you think what they do in their spare time is run around having a ball, taking it easy, doing things that have no value just for their enjoyment. And that's not true. What they do with their spare time is they work Please go to tape number two for a continuation of the presentation.